Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Joshua 24. Find those words. Uh, glory, glory, we have no other king, Jesus, Lord of all. Find them easy to say, but much harder to mean with my whole heart. Um, we won't be completely finishing the last chapter today. We'll be through verse 28. The last couple verses we're going to see, if you take a look there, are actually a burial notice for three different men. This is the way that Joshua ends uh, the book. Uh, that being said, we'll come back and work on through that next week. But today we'll be in Joshua 24, 1 through 28. Uh, and I think it's fair to just confess up front that uh, this passage is packed with so many good things. I was telling a brother later on that, or earlier on that I feel like we could do five sermons in this easily. I won't, don't worry. But out of necessity then, to get the whole and help us understand the point here, it is going to be necessary for us to take some things really closely and understand them, and other things you're going to have to give me a little bit of leeway, and you may want to go look at them to continue with yourself and as you sit down through the Scriptures and look. So just an encouragement, it will be food for your soul and right. So you should keep reading your Bible. Keep on doing that. Uh, let me ask you this as we start out. What kind of loyalties... Uh, are you familiar with in your life? Or what kind of things are you committed to the point that you would say, yes, I'm loyal to? Maybe to a brand or to perhaps maybe relationships or a certain party or something like that. Uh, I can remember growing up in a, in a town where several of the dads that went to school, the kids, the dads went and they'd work uh, at a manufacturing plant, some at GM, some at Chrysler, some at Ford. Um, and the ridiculous conversations that would come out of loyalty for all the kids at the, at the, at the playground. I mean, some of us would be like, oh, I'm a Chevy man. And this kid, his dad worked at the Ford plant. Oh, you guys don't know what you're talking about. I'm a Ford man. You're like, and I mean, we had an ongoing debate because I really thought that once like a Ford F-150 left the lot, that it would just fall completely apart. I mean, again, it's ridiculous. I never drove a Ford. I had no idea. I had no idea what's going on. So I thought that the opposite, like a Silverado, like that thing, like the, like the commercial said, it was like a rock, you know? It's going to last forever and tough and all this. Um, if any of you don't know, I drive a Burgundy 1997 Ford F-150, um, and it has not completely fallen apart yet. Um, but my commitment, as you can see, was very flimsy, it wasn't very firm to one side or the other. And in fact, if I think about the way I try to shop for cars now, I'm like scouring consumer reports to understand what's going to break on the next car that I buy so I can know beforehand whether I'm going to buy that one or not. And my, again, my loyalties are spread very thin over many different places to whoever can offer the best things so that I don't have my car break down. My loyalties are flimsy uh, in that way. And sometimes we understand that to be fine, then other times we understand that loyalties are a really good thing and important. But almost never are they ultimate. In Joshua 24, though, we're going to come face to face to this point where Joshua will come to us and he will not only question the loyalties of Israel, but he will demand that they make a decision. Let me quickly explain what's going on in these first 28 verses. Now, 
You and I know that Joshua is not an orator. He is not necessarily a teacher of the law or some sort of teacher, some sort of public speaker. He is a military commander, and he's good at it. And he is a leader of Israel. We understand this. But in a few places throughout the book already, we've seen glimpses where Joshua obeys his supreme commander, Yahweh, and he will deliver messages to the people for God. This here is like that, except it's far more deliberate. In chapter 24, we will watch as Joshua proves himself to be more than just a military commander. We're going to see here he's more than just an important leader of Israel. He is a prophet. He is a preacher. And his chief concern in this message that he's going to give us is that Israel would take their relationship with Yahweh seriously. In this passage, we'll watch Joshua gather all Israel together, preach a message that has an invitation at the end. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you're from some, some other churches or some of the churches in my background, at the end of the sermon, we have an invitation where you come forward, raise your hand, do something like that. Now, I don't think in this situation that's what's happening necessarily. They probably don't have an organ playing just as I am. But it is an invitation nonetheless, something that they are telling them they need to respond here. Now, Normally, we'd say the exhortation, that's good, and move through, and it's fine. Joshua will not let them off like that. He's not going to allow them to smile to one another, like the words that they've heard, maybe have a few comments, and leave. Joshua's message requires a choice be made. In the first 13 verses, you'll see that his preaching text is a summation of all the material from Genesis 12 to the present, like all of it. Like he's taking everything that has happened from his day all the way back to Abraham. And that's his text. He will, I mean, if, if, if that was my first recorded sermon, what a whopper to choose. I mean, he is going to do this whole thing. I thought I was crazy for trying to do the whole book of Job in one sermon, but he tries to do like the whole Pentateuch. So he's going to preach this to Israel. And once he's done, he is going to bring them to the point of application. If you look at verse 14 and 15, he is going to apply what he has just preached to them. He is going to call for a response. He is going to make sure that they understand this is not just some flimsy response that's like raising your hand for a decision or responding and singing. Oh, that's good. Those are good things. He's making it clear that he is not calling for flimsy decisions, but rather full surrender to only Yahweh. It cannot be to Yahweh. It's to only Yahweh. This is really important here. The rest of the chapter then, 16 through 28, will document just how Israel will respond to Joshua's message. Before we take the plunge, I'd ask you with me to go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to open our hearts as we do this spiritual warfare. Because remember, it's not you listening to me pray. It's you joining together with me that we would pray for one another. Because you realize, or hopefully you do, I cannot change you. You cannot even change you. Only God's Holy Spirit can do that in us. And so if you'd join with me for a moment, we'll pray before we start. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to be made complete in you. We believe what your word says, so we come to it here this morning asking that you would feed us. We need spiritual food. Uh, we, we, we need to be taught. We need to be corrected and trained in righteousness. We ask that you would give us exactly what we need. Lord, would you help us and keep us from distractions this morning? Help us to listen. 
Uh, help us to believe and, and then help us to respond, Lord. Holy Spirit, do the work that my lips and my preparation could never do. Transform us, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, let's take a look at the first 13 verses. I'll read them in a moment here, the verse 13. Uh, you'll see right away that the first verse sets the stage. All right, This is what's going on. Joshua has called all of Israel together, and they have presented themselves before God. The first half of the sermon is spoken in the first person. You're going to see that using the word I over and over and over again as the Lord speaks through Joshua. And then, of course, and shows his authority this way. So let's go ahead and take a look. 1 through 13, I'll read. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians." And made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built. And you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. This is Joshua's text. He starts off with Israel's beginning, Abraham. Abraham was a pretty good guy, right? I mean, one who trusted God and obeyed him. I mean, God made a really good choice to make sure he got Abraham on his side, right? Look at uh, what the text tells us about Abraham and his family in verse 2. They served other gods. They were pagans. It's very easy for us to kind of sneak in some sort of works righteousness right here at the beginning, like that Abraham must have been so good that he was looking for God to, to bless him and that God kind of responded to him and that Abraham somehow is the first mover in all this. Look at his start. He is in the household of other gods, worshiping idols. But notice God's electing love working to pluck Abraham from the grip of ignorance and idolatry. He says this, I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Because Abraham was so awesome. No, it doesn't say that. 
from the very outset, God's gracious hand of blessing is working in his people by his choice. Abraham didn't do anything to deserve this treatment. He deserved opposition and punishment, just like everyone who would worship another God other than Yahweh. And yet, in God's grace, he calls Abraham out of his sin into a relationship with the Almighty God. But he doesn't just bless Abraham, he blesses his offspring also. He eventually gives him Isaac, and he gives Isaac to Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, and he even gives Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. Now, things are looking great. Except here, it seems like the wicked of the two twins, Esau, is the one who on the surface is blessed with the good gift of land. But he goes and he gets it from God. He gets his hill country of Seir, but what about the other twin, Jacob? I mean, wasn't he the one that received the promises of God, that God would bless him and that the seed would come through him? What's all this about going down to Egypt? In the 12 verses that he chose to sum up all of the Pentateuch, he says that's what happened to Jacob. He went down to Egypt. They were there subjected to slavery. They found themselves under the cruel and harsh rule of the Egyptian pharaohs. If you and I think about this, certainly doesn't look like our definition of God blessing him. It looks pretty rough. I love, though, that Joshua included this for us. That he included us for his people. Helping us, especially about putting this, this section here of Esau, who was wicked, who we know disregarded God altogether. And he gives to them, and somehow Jacob doesn't receive anything. In their eyes, it seems like what Jacob received to go down to, Israel, uh, to Egypt was bad. It seemed terrible. How often then, as God's people, do we struggle to understand the circumstances that he has put us in? The things that seem so bad around us, the hardships, the hurt and pain and struggle that we endure. And yet we say, aren't I supposed to be blessed? Aren't I supposed to prosper? Aren't I supposed to have like all the success and the victorious life that I'm supposed to have here? Why is it that my life looks so difficult? I mean, like, I'm trusting you, Lord, but my eyes see the situation and it looks really bad. It looks like you're not blessing me at all. Christian brother and sister, remember that Jacob and his family, who received the promises of God, went down to Egypt into slavery, even when his wicked brother possessed Seir, this hill country. Remember that God is not bound by our understanding of prosperity. We don't get to call the shots on what prosperity and victorious living and success look like. Our world, our American dream does not tell us what prosperity is. They can only see with the natural eyes what's around them. They can't see past the grave. They have no idea of all of history to come. And yet God has given us the eyes of faith to trust and trust him alone. That he, in fact, is the one that gives us true prosperity gives us true success that we can trust more than anything else or any other person or any ideology around us. He alone is worth trusting, although it doesn't look like it. So I'd encourage us, brothers and sisters, hold fast and wait patiently. So here we have in the darkness of Egypt, it gives us this beautiful stage for the Lord to shine his stage light down and show us his magnificent works. We know what happens. The Lord sends Moses and Aaron the Lord sends plagues, and the Lord redeems his people from slavery and brings them out to himself. He brings them out to another place, trusting him, the Red Sea. But even here, I mean, they wonder, and we wonder along with them, 
Were you really looking out for our good God? Or did you just bring us out to slaughter us at the sea? If I can help us for a minute, notice that God never rushes his plans. Our plans would have been far different, I think, for the way that we want to turn around the promises of God to Abraham. But notice here, he waited to give Abraham and Sarah one child, not like many, many offspring, one child until Abraham was 100. Now let's think about the next generation. Also, after that, he doesn't give him tons of grandkids, but two, Jacob and Esau. Esau proves to be a God-hater, and Jacob is a weasel. I mean, they end up then in, in Egypt for 400 years, and the very next move is that they have their backs up against the Red Sea. I mean, this is not the pace or the plan that I would have created for fulfilling the blessings to Israel, to make sure that I came through on all my promises to Abraham. And yet, God includes us showing us his timeline is different than ours. This is not their story that I would have written. This is not with the world's version, again, of success and prosperity. But each time we watch as the Lord lovingly calls and shapes and redeems and delivers his people, he becomes more and more believable that he alone is the true, faithful God. He rescued Israel from the horsemen of Egypt, of course, and the reminder of his justice God shows Israel that he will do what he will do to the wicked. He covers them with the sea and destroys them. In the Red Sea, he shows Israel's enemy. Every last one of them will eventually be destroyed. If not in this life, it will come and there will be a day where he has ultimate victory over all. For the sake of time, though, let me summarize verses 8 through 12 here. The Lord was faithful to deliver Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness where they formalized their covenant relationship into the land east of the Jordan, where they watched as God destroyed every opposition. And finally, as we've been going through here in Joshua, they crossed the Jordan into Canaan, where we see him hand over every enemy for destruction. Joshua sums it all up by saying this at the end, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat of the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Joshua says, don't you see, guys? Your whole history is one huge stanza of God's amazing grace. That is he and he alone who establishes his covenant. If you were to isolate the subjects of these verbs here, if we just did that, let me just read what it would sound like for this section, because I think you'll get the point. I took your father Abraham. I gave him Isaac. I gave Jacob. I gave hill country. I sent Moses. I plagued Egypt. I did it in your midst. I brought you out. I brought your fathers out. I put darkness. I brought you to the land. I gave them into your hand. I destroyed them. I would not listen to Balaam. I delivered you. I gave them into your hand. I gave them into your hand. I sent Hornet before you. I drove them out. I gave you a land. Who's the story about? This story is about God. And by the end of Joshua's telling of Israelite history, we respond with the hymn writer and say, let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. We understand that this good God is the only one that we would ever want. The only one that can overcome all these things. When you put it this way, Joshua, we start to understand why in the world would we ever mess around with any other God. He is the best. He's the greatest. As a short aside for us as Bible readers, I want to point something out here. Joshua is not just recalling a bunch of historical facts to give us a context. He's not just giving us a time frame with which to look at. 
as you and I are reading along, and we want to be better readers of the Bible so that we might trust and follow after his word and be changed, we need to look at this passage and realize that Joshua has actually given us a great treasure when it comes to learning how to read the Bible. Now, you may say, what do you mean? Sometimes you and I sit down and we try to read something in Genesis or Exodus in an isolated story, and we get the story. We understand it. We know what's going on. But then we try to, rightly, we try to uh, adapt it and make sure that we can apply it to our life. And we take the good examples and we try to do those things what the good people did and things that the bad people did. Don't do those things. I mean, follow Moses. Don't follow Balak. Don't, don't do the bad things. Do the good things. This is a good thing. It's fine to listen to that and make sure that we do what is right. It's fine. But it falls short of the real purpose that the author is trying to make. He is helping us. This is called a hermeneutic, a way to read this section. He is helping us understand one condensed place. These 12 verses, Israel gets a version of their history, all that stuff. They get a version here that puts everything in proper perspective. Now, we haven't been reading about individual stories alone. Instead, we have been reading the story of God calling a people, God redeeming a people, God delivering a people, God rescuing a people, God giving to his people. And even here as we are now in the land, God settling a people into their land. I want to remind you as readers to always keep your own reading in the right context. Don't rip it out and do what you want to do with it. Remember, this is how Joshua explains all of what's been going on. It is God's story. He's encouraging their hearts to soar as they think of their great God and all that he has done. But at the same time, it makes our own soar, remembering this great God. But Joshua knows better than to leave us here, hoping that this sermon will sometime, somehow stand alone and stand the test of time, hoping that people can be worked up enough to sustain obedience for years to come and never turn away from God their Lord again. Joshua knows that Israel must be taught what it means to be the people of God. Look at verse 14 and 15. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This kind of a challenge to fear the Lord and serve him is not new. We've heard this before. But Joshua doesn't stop there. He actually puts it into a bigger, newer framework. It's not new, actually. But it helps us understand that this is not just an exhortation or encouragement to do what's right. What I mean here is that this is not just a good pep talk. Hey, guys, go out and fear the Lord. Go out and serve him. If the chapter had ended there, that would have been good, something that we could encourage one another with. That's right and good. But Joshua does something more. These exhortations are helpful, but we need to notice that Joshua heightens these commands by following them up the command to put away all foreign gods. It's different. Helping us understand something about loyalty. Helping us understand that he is in control. In other words, Joshua is saying, when you do not serve the Lord... You are serving other gods. And what I want you to hear me say is that you need to stop that now and forever. You cannot have your heart go in this place and this place and still say that you serve me. Joshua is saying, don't forget who you are. 
and what makes you who you are. You are Israel, God's people, chosen, called, redeemed, delivered, and blessed. All of the different things I showed you already in this past. You are not the masters of your own destiny. Despite what you might think, your master is the Lord God Yahweh. Unless, of course, you would rather choose some of these other foreign gods around you. Maybe you don't take this seriously, Israel, but you need to. Fearing the Lord and serving him means that you are loyal to one God and one God only. But if you don't want to do that, let me give you two other choices. All right, uh, You can go back and uh, choose the gods of your forefathers back in Mesopotamia or the gods here that are in the land of the Amorites. That's fine too if you want to do that. Now, you need to choose either the old school, tried and true, conservative idols of the old days, or you have to go with the contemporary, relevant idols, the ones that are trendy in our times, the ones that are more liberal and progressive, these new idols. Which will you choose, Israel? If you want these choices, you can have these, the conservative idols or the liberal idols. Now, you and I kind of laugh and think that's a silly way to talk about it. That's exactly what's happening here. And they would have chuckled themselves because they realized the absurdity between a conservative idol and a liberal idol. They're both idols. They're both dead. They both can't do anything for you. Exactly. The point here is not to choose which old idol you'll have, but to show the absurdity of idolatry in general. To show that the real choice is whether or not you will serve God. Are you going to fear him or are you going to keep playing around? And he helps them understand that their choice has no, there's no way the choice between two other gods will ever satisfy them. And it draws them back to understand their real need for God. Joshua's making it clear, there is no one else to worship but him. There's only one legitimate choice if Israel still wants to be Israel. These foreign gods did not take Abraham out of idol worship. These foreign gods did not give him offspring. These foreign gods did not rescue him from Egypt when their backs were against the wall in the Red Sea. These foreign gods did not destroy the inhabitants of Canaan. None of them did. It was all done by Yahweh. And the Israelites get this. They do understand. So they respond in verse 16 through 18. Let me read it. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that he went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. Yes, this is an excellent response. I mean, it's, it's, it's very good. It's exactly what we would hope for here. Israel understands and tells back their history via this lens as God, the gracious giver. So we're caught off guard when we read 19 and 20. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Whew. I mean, this is certainly not the response that I would be expecting from a leader, especially after such a good response from the people. I mean, hasn't Israel said enough of their good confession? I mean, haven't they proved that through these words that they will put away the gods of their fathers and the gods around them in Canaan? I mean, Joshua truly understands what it means, though, to count the cost. He understands what's going on around him. He understands the cost of discipleship. 
and complete commitment to Yahweh, and he knows that the people do not understand that. Too often we're like Israel and believe that we can treat God as one of the most important of many options. And that, you know, as long as in the end we end up with the right confession, uh, in the end that we'll be safe from God and his wrath. But the author of Hebrews tells us differently, encouraging us to consistent endurance and obedience and the love for God. James also taught us something differently. He showed us very uniquely that our actions must be in line with our confession. If we say one thing and our life does another, you're a liar. It's not true. And the truth is not in you. Joshua knew that talk was cheap and that Israel did not understand exactly what they were saying. At least they did not mean exactly what they thought they meant. Joshua says, you are not able to serve the Lord. Why? Because he is a holy and jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sin. Now, that's a crazy statement. We should read that and say, whoa, how do I explain this? God just said he will not forgive transgressions or sins. If we know anything, we know that. We just read about it in Colossians. How's this to be? It seems like an incorrect statement. He says, you're not able to serve me. And then this weird reasoning, why? Because I'm holy and jealous. We know that we're commanded to serve the Lord, and by his grace alone we can do so. But we have to remember the context. We have to remember what's going on in Israel. We're talking about all this in the context of Israel toying with the worship of other gods, being willing to kind of have some on the side. Look at verse 20. He says, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods... Joshua is saying that if you treat Yahweh so lightly as to think that it's okay to have a little idol worship on the side, think again. He's saying if you think that it's okay to be a good Israelite but not love God with your heart, soul, and mind, you're wrong. Israel is not able to serve the Lord and serve other gods. It's impossible. They haven't identified it properly for what it is. Joshua is helping them do that. They cannot entertain the thought of both God and others at the same time. He says, there will be no other gods before me. In every way, this is idolatry, rebellion. In the context of a relationship, this is adultery. Again, Joshua's reasoning helps clarify what he means. You are not able to serve the Lord. Why? Because he's holy and jealous. He will not forgive your transgressions and your sins. You aren't able to serve the Lord when your heart is divided in worship to other gods as well. God is holy. God is jealous. He does not allow you to spread around your loyalties. He says, you're either all in with me or you have nothing. This is not serving him. This is not commitment. This is not loyalty to have things on the side. God will not allow us to toy with other suitors. He is a jealous God, a faithful husband. We must see Israel's identity properly. What makes Israel Israel is their relationship with God, their complete faithfulness to him and him alone. The covenant relationship that we see initiated with Abraham and formalized at Sinai does not only go one way. It was a tragic mistake for Israel to think that it was okay for them to flirt with other gods while their husband stands by, ready to let them back in with no consequence whatsoever. He will not. He is not a cuckold willing for his wife to sleep around with other men as long as she eventually comes back to his house. I realize this is strong language. This is exactly what's going on here. Your faithfulness is required. You're all. He is holy. He is jealous. 
Joshua goes so far as to say that if this is your state, if you are willing to have other gods and Yahweh altogether, he will not forgive your transgressions and your sins. This strikes at the very heart of our own conversion and standing in Christ. I mean, is there really forgiveness of sin? I mean, is, am I able to really serve him? Let me answer you. Yes. There's only one way, a resounding yes. There is forgiveness because of the blood of Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness because someone has done the right thing on our behalf and has fulfilled every part of the law, Jesus Christ himself. We're freed from our sins to serve with our whole hearts. But, but, listen, we understand our unfaithful hearts. We understand how our loyalties can so easily be spread around. We understand, as the hymn writer said, that we are prone to wander. We know that our faith is like shifting sand. And so we do what Jesus told us to do in Mark 1. We repent and believe. We repent and we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God alone. Not holding back a little bit of idolatry here, little idolatry over there, things that I kind of want over here. Every bit of you must be his. He is Lord alone. If you think you can have other things on the side, you're mistaken, friend. It is only by trusting Yahweh and him alone. Only God and his mercy through Jesus can save you. But this is what he requires. His people's whole heart, repenting and believing that he alone can rescue us. Does Jesus expect the same amount of loyalty that we see here from Yahweh? What he says to Joshua? Oh, yeah. Let me just talk about what he said in Luke 14. He's speaking to these big crowds. Remember this? He's talking about big crowds, and it's easy to follow Jesus when everything's going good. The bread and fish are flowing. Miracles are happening. This is good to follow him. This is what Jesus says. If you're going to follow me, you need to hate your father, your mother, your wife, children, siblings. You need to hate your own life. In other words, following me is not like joining the YMCA and paying your monthly dues. It's like dying. In fact, it is dying. He finishes the statement, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Joshua's challenge is sobering, but it helps us understand that we are not talking about just another God. We are talking about the supreme God, the only God in the universe. The people respond to Joshua's unconventional answer here, and Joshua codifies it. He makes a covenant in these following verses, not between them and God, actually between themselves, that stands as a witness that they understand this commitment to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Let me read verse 1 through 28. And the Lord said, I'm sorry, and the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Joshua helps the people understand, and us as readers as well, understand the importance 
of the importance of this commitment. They are not making a choice between Chevrolet and Ford. They're making a choice whether or not they will give their entire allegiance to God himself. They are choosing to forsake all other gods and worship him alone. Their identity has been forged in the fires of God's redeeming love over their short history, but this history doesn't guarantee their identity in the future. It points to it over and over and recalls them to it, but to complete and utter loyalty to Yahweh is continually for them to listen to his word and to obey. We find ourselves in a very similar situation. It is an ever-present question for us. Will you choose Yahweh or something else? Or let me make it more realistic, because you're all here. Will you choose Yahweh or will you choose Yahweh plus something else? Yahweh plus this. Yahweh plus that. Jesus plus the kind of things that I want. That's other gods. That's idolatry. He hates this and rejects us when we decide to worship other things. And so we must preach to one another, brother, sister, do not worship other things. We must be alone in our complete faithfulness to God himself. Discipleship does not look necessarily like a Bible study or like church attendance or like a moral life, although all those things would be good and right. We would encourage those things. Only complete allegiance to Jesus Christ and renouncing everything else evidences true faith and repentance. So my encouragement to us and my call that we would choose the same thing, that we would realize before us is to choose day by day in repentance and faith God himself. Remember that these things, our repenting, our choosing does not save us. It cannot. It never could. But these are what it means to follow him, completely devoted to him and him alone, and to acts of repentance and faith. So let us be marked, brothers and sisters, by loyalty to Jesus and Jesus alone, being marked by repentance and faith in our Lord. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, you truly are our most wonderful captain and Lord, the one who has made all things right, the one who has won our redemption, the one who acted righteously. And Lord, we put on Paul says, we put on your righteousness. We never deserve to have it on. Lord, it's yours. And we come to you lowly, repenting and confessing and believing that you and you alone can win our salvation. So we ask God that you would help us in this, continue to repent, continue to believe, and that we would call one another to repentance and faith. We love you, Christ. We ask this time would be to your honor and glory and that you would help us that we would not be so distracted by the other gods around us, but that we would be singular in our love for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.